you will be eaten by cannibals. If you go out there, you will die. If you go out there to preach the gospel to those people, you will surely be killed. These were the words spoken by pastors, family, and friends to John G. Patton in the spring of 1858. Patton was born on May the 24th, 1824, in Dumfries, Scotland. He served in ministry in Glasgow, and he had a very prominent inner city ministry reaching the young uh, people in that city. So that many, in the midst of his desire to go, many thought that he was throwing his life away as he desired to set sail for the New Hebrides to preach the gospel to the natives of the island of Tana. Just 20 years prior to this, it was still impressed on people's minds that two ministers went to that same island and were killed by these same cannibals just 20 years earlier. So many were pleading with Pat not to go, not to waste his life. An aging Christian once objected to John G. Patton's plan to minister to the South Sea Islands with those very words, you will be eaten by cannibals. To which Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. (laughs) I confess to you that if I can but lie and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, It will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Those are some bold words by Patton. A little sassy too, isn't he? I've always liked Patton for that. He's kind of sassy, you know, but and forward, but but he was truthful, wasn't he? He was truthful. He understood that all die. All of us will die one day, but he wanted to die following Christ at whatever the cost. The truth is that you and I uh, will die one day. All of us will die. Every hour, over 6,000 people die around the world. In fact, death is one of the things that all of us have in common with one another, regardless of race, income, intellect, what you do or what you accomplish on this life or what period of history you live in, you will die unless Christ comes back first for his church. Now, over the years, most of us have been affected by death in one way uh, or another. Maybe you can recall in your life the first time you encountered death. I know for me, it was when I was about eight years old. I can remember it was Christmas Eve, and I remember uh, all of the conversation around the table that night was over the three family members that had just recently uh, passed away, my grandfather, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother, all died in the two months leading up uh, to Christmas. Normally, Christmas Eve was the, the highlight of the year for me as a kid. I spent the last couple weeks scouring the house looking to try to find the presents that my parents had hid. And, um, and then once they get under the tree, I would count them to make sure I had as many presents as my brother or sister, if not more. You know, and then I'd shake them by my ear to find out you know, what it was, and I had all my guesses ready, and all that anticipation was building up to Christmas Eve. 
Uh, normally, I'd be just excited to get done with dinner to begin opening my presents. But I remember that year was different. I remember sitting at the table, just breaking down in tears, just weeping, because I didn't want to open my presents. All I wanted at that point was to have my grandparents back. You know, my memories of them were sweet and affectionate. My grandfather would oftentimes put me on his shoulders and he'd run around the room. And um, It was one of the highlights whenever I got to, to see him. I knew he'd pick me up. And Even as he got sicker and sicker with cancer, he would do whatever he could to lift me up and to, to talk with me and to hold me. And then all of a sudden, as an eight-year-old, he was just gone. See, death is always on our minds, whether we're a kid or whether the years have now passed from that personal memory. It's always on our minds, whether we've lost loved ones or not. We can see through Paul's writings that death was constantly on his mind. Paul had seen many fellow Christians die. In fact, we talked about the first week as we began the study of Philippians that, in fact, Paul helped murder Christians. Uh, And now Paul, as a Christian, is in prison for his faith, for sharing Jesus with others. He's possibly awaiting death himself. Uh, He's in the days leading up to a possible trial doesn't know if he's going to get out, if he's going to pass away or live on. And so he gives us some instruction in his book to the Philippians. In this passage this morning, Paul's going to address this topic of death. He's going to give us instruction on how to live uh, uh, in a joyous manner, both in life and in death. So if you want to turn with me uh, to the book of Philippians, we're going to look at this difficult topic this morning as we look at verses 18 through 30. Verses 18 through 30. If you were here last week, you saw that Paul had an incredible joy in sharing Jesus with others. We saw that he took joy in sharing it to the entire palace guard while in imprisonment. We saw that he had joy in his brothers who were emboldened to share Jesus outside of prison. And then even, and this was kind of tough for us to get our head around, I I think, he was even joyous in that his rivals or those that were envious of Paul shared Christ. You know, those people that were were in it for their own uh, admiration, for their own fame, or to even perhaps cause Paul distress. Even then, Paul says, what does it matter? In that, in every way, whether false pretense or true, Christ is preached. And in that, I rejoice. So Paul took joy in that. But today, we're going to see he shifts gears. That Paul, that same apostle, can, can have joy in life, but also in death. And look how he starts. So we just said, I just kind of read off how he ended the last passage. We'll, we'll pick it up today in the second part of verse 18. And look how he begins this passage. Yes. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. <laughs> and now in verse 19, he gives us the reason the reason he can ultimately rejoice. For, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. 
Well, what kind of deliverance is Paul talking about in verse 19? Is it rescue from captivity? Does he think he's going to get out of prison? Is it preservation of his physical life on earth? Was it triumph over enemies? Was it salvation? Was it eternal redemption? Well, as we think about that, I think it's important to note that Paul wasn't necessarily expecting his earthly circumstances to improve. He's not a so-called health and wealth, prosperity, gospel pastor. He knew that being a Christian doesn't necessarily mean you will have good health or own a mansion or drive a Bentley. You may have these things, but these aren't perks of being a Christian. No, Paul understands that freedom in Jesus is secured for him. It was not freedom from pain and suffering, but freedom in pain and suffering. See, the idea that God wants you to be healthy and rich is nowhere in the Bible. We learn that freedom from pain and suffering will only come when Christ comes back or we're taken up into heaven. But we can't expect now what, what God promises later, can we? And, and Paul realized this. Look down at verse 29 in the same chapter. Paul writes, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. In fact, suffering is granted to you on behalf of Christ to spread his name. Well, now jumping back up to verse 19. If we look more carefully at that word translated deliverance, we find out that it is almost always used to mean salvation in the New Testament or rescue from God's wrath on the final day. And it seems that Paul is using his Greek Old Testament here and using the same word that Job uses in Job 13, 16 in reference to the deliverance that we have in our salvation. So Paul's use here has to do not with deliverance from prison, but with final deliverance of a believer in the last judgment. So the grounds for Paul's rejoicing here is not, not deliverance from prison or deliverance from pain or deliverance from suffering, The apostle's grounds for rejoicing is that he will be vindicated one day in God's heavenly court. Whether he lives or whether he dies. So we get the answer to our question of Paul's joy pretty early in the passage, actually. Paul has joy in life and in death because of his salvation in Christ. But he unpacks that in the rest of the passage. First we notice in verse 20 that his concern in this life is whether his life will exalt or magnify Christ. It's that he won't do anything shameful. His concern is not his comfort. Paul wants to live and die well. That's his concern. He wants to magnify and exalt God in his very life. I think John Piper is helpful uh, for us when he reminds us that we magnify God not like a microscope magnifies God, but like a telescope magnifies God. You may remember in in grade school when you were young, perhaps in biology class or in a science class, you would have a microscope out and you would take perhaps a small insect uh, that was dead and maybe even just a part of an insect, perhaps a wing, and you'd put it on the slide. And then you'd look through the microscopic lens and you'd see this, this wing just come to life. You know, you'd see all the intricate details on it and you'd be able to see things that you couldn't see uh, with the naked eye. 
But that's not what we do when we exalt or magnify God. It's more like a telescope where we look at something magnificent, like, like the moon. And as we look through that telescopic lens, we see the moon, something magnificent. That we see the moon more magnificent, we see it more like it really is, right? It it's, it's, has craters, it has beautiful texture, it's massive. But when we look through that telescopic lens, we see something magnificent more like it actually is. And that's what we do with God. God is, is, is all glorious. Christ is all supreme. And when we magnify or exalt God, we make him look like he really is. So by our words, by our actions, by the way we live, we give testament to Christ. So when people would see our lives, when people would see how we live and work, that they would actually see someone like Christ in their very life. So that's what Paul's concerned about, whether he lives or whether he dies, that he would exalt, that he would magnify Christ. That's his life goal. That's his hope. He continues in verse 21. He summarizes his values, his life. This is perhaps the focal point of the entire book and perhaps Paul's ministry. He says, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now how can he say this? For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Well, as I meditated on this verse this week, I think at the deepest level, Paul could say this because he was in Christ, and Christ was in him. It's a description used more than any other in the New Testament to describe the believer's living, saving union with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It means that Christ was at the conscious center of, of everything Paul did. So that Paul had a Christ-centered ministry, a Christ-empowered ministry, a Christ-exalting ministry. Christ was at the focal point of everything he did. But this is certainly not the life of the world, is it? According to the newspaper and, and the internet, for me to live is to fornicate, to accumulate, to, to dine well. On a more basic level, for to me to live is golf or tennis or to work, to garden, to travel, to watch TV, to ski, to make money, to shop till I drop. Of course, if, if that is your life, if this is your life, then death is the loss of everything, isn't it? You've probably heard the phrase, the man with the most toys wins. Have you heard that? Well, perhaps you've also heard the phrase, the man with the most toys still dies. <laughs> See, for him, for that person, death means the loss of all. It means the loss of everything, everything that they've lived for is gone when that person dies. I recently saw a pastor that I like to listen to title his current sermon series, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. See, what he's saying is, Jesus is everything. Now, I realize that this is hard stuff. I, I really struggled through this passage myself this week after I finished writing the sermon yesterday. I went for a walk around uptown 
Murdoff and I began to think about how I value so many things in my life more than God. In fact, often in my life, the equation is Jesus plus everything equals everything. And I try to fill my life with everything else in order to find joy. And I start playing the if-only game. Are you familiar with the if-only game? It's a game I play often. If only I had blank, then I'd be happy. (laughs) You ever play that game? It goes something like this. When I'm hungry, if only I had something to eat, then I'll have joy. Or when someone criticizes me, if only they would go away, (laughs) I'd be happy. You know, there's always that one person in your life, right, that just bugs you. You know, if only they would just pack up and move all the way out to Tasmania, never to return. (laughs) That's for you, Brett Morrow. That's for Brett Morrow. If only they'd go to Brett Morrow's home in Tasmania, never to return, then, and only then, would I be happy. It's not you, Brett. Not you. Yet. Not you yet. If only they'd be gone, then I'd be happy. There's always that one person. Or if my bank account, you know, is empty. If if only I would have some more money, then I could give my kids what they deserve. Or perhaps you're single. And if only I could get married. If only I'd have someone with me. So I would no longer be lonely. Then, then God, then I would have joy. Then I'd be able to serve you. If only my family member hadn't died. If only I didn't have this health condition. If only, if only, if only. As if the if only is what will bring us joy. It's as if what we yearn for will complete our happiness. But it's never enough, is it? You know, even when we get what we want, there's always another if only waiting around the corner. When we begin to live for this life, we do our best to, to get these if onlys so that our life is more comfortable here on earth. For us, gain is the accumulation of these things on earth. But what Paul is saying here is that for him, death is gain. That the loss of all these earthly accumulations is actually gain. It's an incredible statement. We can't miss it. Let it impress on your heart this morning. And may we never forget it, that to live is Christ. And to die is gain. It's an incredible statement. Paul is saying that being face-to-face with the giver of life, being face-to-face with Jesus, is more valuable to him than even life itself. It's incredibly hard for us. I think John Calvin was right when he said that our hearts are idle factories. We are constantly seeking after various idols to bring us joy instead of Christ. It's important for us this morning to think through what things we're personally holding on to for our joy. Is it Christ? Or is it something else? Do we love Christ more than my ministry? Do I love Christ more than my health, more than my job? Do I love Christ more than my wife, my husband, my kids? Do I love Christ more than life itself? See, it's important for us to examine in our lives what is it that we can't be happy without it. If you're brave enough to examine your heart and answer that question, I think you will find 
your God. What Paul is saying this morning to us is that if God is not the most important thing in your life, then you will fear death because death will be the loss of everything. But if you treasure God above all things, death is not dying because you gain what's most important, Christ, face to face, in deeper, more intimate fellowship and communion. Well, Paul obviously doesn't get to choose life or death on his own. It's not in his power to choose, but suppose he did get to choose one or the other. What would he do? Well, look at the dilemma in verse uh, 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. (laughs) He has no idea what he should choose. Should it be death? Should it be life? He doesn't know what's going to happen. And what he should choose, if he could choose, he keeps going back and forth. And then he says in verse 23, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Another incredible statement. He kind of completes his thought from verse 22. And he says, being with Christ is better by far. It's not even a comparison to be with Christ to gaze at him, to talk with him and embrace him and laugh with him. It's better than everything else that this world could offer. It's better than all those friends at high school, better than falling in love with someone or reading stories to your children, better than a promotion in your company, better than a well-deserved retirement in grandchildren. It's 10,000 times better than all of those things as far as Paul is concerned. Paul's telling us that, in fact, we will magnify Christ in our dying precisely to the degree that we believe that fellowship with him in heaven is more to be preferred than any person or thing on this earth. Death was no threat to Paul's joy. And as you sit here this morning, do you know the freedom that comes from embracing the fact that Jesus plus nothing really is everything? Do you know Jesus? Is, is he your everything? If you've repented of your sin and believed unto Christ and have begun a relationship with him, then when you die, you will, in fact, be face to face for all of eternity with your creator. And you will enjoy the riches that come with that. But you and I would do well to remember this each day, wouldn't we? We'd do well to preach it to ourselves on a regular basis. I think there's perhaps no better medicine for the soul than to preach the gospel to ourselves each day. I think this is perhaps the most important daily habit that you or I could do, lest we forget what God has done in the midst of our distress. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Let me explain what he means. If you're anything like me, you do this often. When the alarm clock rings in the morning, you kind of hit it a few times, you hit the snooze button a couple times, and then you kind of roll over and you begin to stress and worry about all the things that you have to do that day. You, know, you start thinking your, through your to-do list and you don't want to get up and you're tired. And then finally you get up and you say, woe is me that I have to wake up and face my day. <laughs> finally you stumble to 
uh, across the room and you get dressed and you move on. Or perhaps you go to bed at night listening to yourself, worried about what will happen the next day as you think about the stressful phone calls or emails and you begin to listen to the lies and you wish that you could jump into a time machine and just skip on to the weekend. You start listening to yourself. But on a daily basis, we're really faced with, with two choices as we go about our day. It's, it's either to listen to ourselves and our constantly changing feelings about our circumstances, or we can talk to ourselves about the unchanging truth of who God is and what he has accomplished for us. Martin Luther has said, The gospel cannot be preached and heard enough, for it cannot be grasped well enough. We never get over the gospel. That's why we talk about it in all of our sermons and throughout our service. I'd encourage you not only to make this a Friday morning habit, but to make it a daily habit. Perhaps it's memorizing Bible passages throughout the day or putting reminders in your car as you drive or even maybe disciplining yourself to make it a habit that as soon as you wake up and as you go to bed at night to remember to talk to yourself about Christ's, Christ and what he's done and, and how he loves you and what he has secured for you on the cross. Or perhaps it's praying through the gospel every day for your friends and for your family. Whatever it is, I'd encourage you to start preaching it to yourself, to start talking to yourself about the gospel on a regular basis. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I'd encourage you to turn from your sin, to repent, and to believe unto him. For he has died on the cross to take away the sins of the world. And he was raised from the dead to show his divinity to the world. But in that, the bad news is that on your, on your own, you can't, achieve salvation. You can't do anything good. Neither could I. But the good news is that even in our sin, God did not leave us alone. He did not leave us alone, but Christ came and he offered a way to get to God, to be reconciled to God if you would merely repent, meaning you would turn from your sin and believe unto Christ solely for your salvation. And I would encourage you, if you haven't done that, to do that today and to even come to talk to some of the elders and staff. We'd love to, uh, to get to know you and hear what God's doing in your life, even today. Well, Paul continues in verse 24. We'll run through the rest of the, the passage rather quickly. He says, But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Did you catch that in verse 25? Another striking insight. If the Lord continues to keep us in this life, what we are meant to do is to encourage others to grow as Christians and to bring joy to them. That's part of the question if you were to ask yourself, what is my life for? In fact, your life is to encourage others and to rejoice in what God has given you. Do others have joy in life because of you? It's a good question to ask this week. See, Paul could have joy in his life because he, in fact, brought joy to the Philippians. And for their good, he's willing to keep living. And this is kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? It's kind of, kind of backwards. We often think of, of whether we'd be willing to die for someone. <laughs> but Paul, in his selflessness, is willing to live for the Philippians. He's unbelievably selfless. He's willing to go on and suffer persecution, suffer 
possibly even death, to serve and to bring joy to the Philippians. And he finishes his instruction to us in verse 27 and following. He gives us some, some direction on what is required of the Philippians in his absence. And we'll run through this um, here as we conclude. Verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Whatever happens, whether he visits them or not, whether Paul's ever with the Philippians, again, the one thing that they must not fail to do is to conduct their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, Paul's connecting this back to verse 21, because only when you believe death is gain can you do this. And he doesn't give us in this passage, he doesn't break down into specific exhortations, but one overarching command covering all of our lives. The gospel establishes the very norm of the Philippians' conduct, so that their community with one another, their fellowship must be marked by a similarity to the life of Jesus Christ. That they and we must follow Christ's example. It's doing the very thing that John G. Patton did in risking his life to spread the gospel. That's how John G. Patton could go to the New Hebrides to take the gospel to cannibals. And how even after the death of his wife and newborn son, just months after he arrived, he in fact says in his journals that he had to dig their own graves with his own hands right next to the house that he had built. Yet even in this, he could continue to serve Christ on that island for four years. And in fact, in the South Sea Islands for 41 years, working among cannibals. He says in his journal he almost died of high fever on 14 occasions. And on at least one occasion he spent hiding in a tree at the very mercy of an unreliable chief and the, the hundreds of angry natives who hunted for his very life. In fact, after the survival, Patton says that he heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet he sat there among the branches, Patton says, as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Patton loved Jesus and gave up everything to serve him. Fifteen years after arriving, though, on that second island... Patton saw the entire island of Aniwa turn to Christ. Years later, he wrote, I claimed Aniwa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Savior's feet. Now, 150 years later, 85% of those islanders claim to follow Christ. Now, why would Patton undergo all that suffering? Because for him, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Only by knowing this truth and beholding Christ as our everything could Patton live in a manner, himself, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I encourage us all today as we 
go forth from here, that we would be willing, in fact, each and every one of us, that we would be willing, in fact, to die for Jesus if need be. May he be so big to us that, in fact, Jesus plus nothing would equal everything. Well, let's pray and ask for God's grace to help us. Father, would we never forget Christ's death and sacrifice for us? Would it comfort us as we go through various trials? Would Christ become so big to us that we'd be willing to forsake even our very life to be like him in his suffering? Help us to live lives, manner, live lives worthy, man, manner of the worthy of the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Would we be a gospel-soaked church that magnifies Christ by our very words, and by our very actions, would many experience the joy in life and death that we have. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. Amen.